Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Dante Ross. If you don't know his name, he has just written a, a great book called Son of the City, which on one level is um, a great thing to read if you're interested in how the music business sort of came from being a gunslinger's business into sort of what it then became core. Like the period of time, the last moments in time when it was a business where an individual with hustle could kind of uh, rise to very near the top of it through his uh, gumption and smarts and ability to connect with people. But on the other hand, it is uh, the story of somebody coming from very difficult circumstances who figures out who he is, what his gifts are, how to share those gifts, and how to help other people share theirs. And if I had never met Dante Ross, I would love this book, and it would be an incredibly moving book. But there's something about the people you were tight with in your early 20s when you mm. went through diff- when you went through shit with yeah. that you stay, even if that person has not been in your life on a regular basis, and your book's all about this too, you are still connected in a deep way. And Dante and I were very close in our early 20s. And we had offices right next to each other for about a year and a half. I think they put the young, goofy guys in one section. They were like, you, you yeah, they did. Here. They did. And, um, and reading your book, man, it was, there were moments in it I found so deeply, so deeply moving. It brought me right back to who we were then, mm. to mm. what the people around us were like then. Mm. Uh, your way of disc- even though some of the dates are a little jumbled, but uh, <laughs> like who we were then and looking at these adults around us mm. and the way we perceive them, you describe those people, what they were like, what they cared about, how they expressed themselves. I mean, you described it with this incredible writer's eye. And there's a thing about you, man, you, it's, it's weird. Like you always understood, it seemed to me from a very young age and the book really illuminated like, why you had to develop the survival skill. But you always seemed like you were trying to understand what the fucking shot was and Mm. where the power was in the moment and what the dynamics were Mm. and how to think your way through it. Doesn't always mean uh, you were able to make the right decision. Oh yeah, it's, it's, you know, having having, um, some insight to maybe how it works and then being able to navigate are two different things, right? And it's trial and error. I think you figure it out by failing most of the time. Um, you figure out, you hope you learn from the mistake you made. And then you also hope you learn from the success you had. Um, and it, it it was not easy. I mean, I got to say, like, we're really blessed when we worked together at a lecture because we had, a, we had a great guy in charge, a real music guy, right? Like Bob Krasnow was, to this day, probably the best person I ever worked for in terms of he gave you enough rope to hang yourself. And he believed in you as a person or you didn't work for him. Right. And when he didn't believe in you, he fired you pretty unceremoniously usually, but, but, you know, it was, um, and, and underneath him, there was this kind of hierarchy and me and you somehow, like we, we, we had these guys above us and some of them liked us, some of us, some of them didn't. And we had to figure out how to make that work for us. Um, but it was great training ground for the rest of our lives. Well, a hundred percent. And, you know, I looked back, you know, that that kid did the oral history of Electra A&R for the AV club yeah, three yeah, years yeah. back. Yeah. And I looked back at it, this, I read it this morning because I was like, I'd remembered some of the shit you wrote, you had said versions of then. And 
I was really happy when I saw my quote about you was, I said that Dante yeah. Ross was always ahead of his time. So, all right, I want to set this for people. So there's this job in the music business called A&R, Artists and Repertoire, and it's basically the people who are the creative liaison. They're the people who work with the bands or the artists or the acts, and then work inside the record company on that act's behalf, but also work on the record company's behalf in terms of directing the talent and the balance, figuring out where you kind of live in relation to these different demands is very difficult. And it's kind of like one of the biggest, hardest parts of that gig. Right, because you have to you have to know where your influence is needed, where it isn't needed. You have to kind of pick and choose your battles, right? So you have to you have to kind of earn the trust of the band and hopefully you can influence them. And sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't. And you always have to kind of, you have to establish the line where it begins, where it ends, where you're being obtrusive, which you don't want to be because you're obtrusive, you lose the trust and where you're being additive, right? And sometimes you're additive by doing very little. And sometimes you're additive by doing a lot. Also though, when you're a younger person at this, your allegiance to the artist Sometimes some people understand that that allegiance means you and, and you learned this in um, as one reads your book. As you were going, you learned that the way you could serve them best is by really telling them the unadulterated truth of your opinion oh, to yeah. get them to make the best. But in the beginning, that shit's hard. And we we were the young guys, much younger than everybody else there because we'd each done something that got us this job. And the other people were 10, 15 years older than us. And yeah. And that meant also the people we had to go to, like there's a hilarious run in Dante's book where he talks about having to get the promotion people. And those are the people who back then would take the records to radio and you really needed them. But enlisting them in your journey was for me, the hardest thing of the whole job yeah. because learning how to speak to them was very difficult for me. I don't think I ever got it right. And uh, you talk about the sort of challenges. Oh yeah. It's super challenging especially back then because the, these guys, a lot of them were like, you know, kind of bougie black guys, right? So I'm like their worst nightmare. Like, I'm like, not only am I not black, I'm a white guy who's obsessed with rap music, and I've got a big mouth and size 40 jeans on. I'm everything they don't like. They're like, forget. They're like, they look at me and they're like, I hate this guy. So you've got to kind of get them to champion your records and it's usually the last thing they want to do. They're way more into Anita Baker or Keith Sweat, things that are layups for them and also culturally aligned with the way that they view the world as opposed to brand newbies who are like confrontational five percenters, like questioning everything. And they are scared of these guys half the time. They don't want to have to work these records because it's work. It's not a layup. They can't, they can't just, you know, it, it's not easy. But yeah, but also time immemorial. A and R, whether yes, that's true that you were aligned with black music. You were somebody in the culture. You were accepted by the cutting edge of hip hop artists. You pushed the boundaries of hip hop. But time immemorial, I mean, famously, you know, John Hammond assigned Bruce and Dylan, and both were considered by the yep. other people to be failures. So, yeah. like, it's always the young A and R person sort of pushing the envelope of any kind of music is always up against it. And is usually going to be like the market's usually going to prove them wrong. You just hope you can get proved right. But I think part of it, Dante, and what's so moving about the book, because even if you're not a record business person, 
is it's a story of someone who wasn't an orphan, but was practically orphaned at various times along the way. Raised by wolves. Raised by wolves and had to become a, and became a wolf and then had to figure out how to become a kind wolf and yeah. had a chip that wasn't just on your shoulder, but was like your whole uh, torso and head yeah. were this giant chip that you had while also having to yeah. remain sensitive to the art. Let's start, I think. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up in New York and the way music first, how, how music first started to kind of save you or how you started to lean on, on, on music? You know, I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My parents were political activists. My mom was a school teacher, a community activist. What's crazy about my my childhood was kind of like my parents were more concerned with saving the world than kind of saving their child um, at times. I think they were distracted. They had big, lofty wants, and maybe uh, raising kids weren't necessarily at the center of these big wants. Um, but my mother particularly loved music. Um, I was not raised with my father. Um, my mother loved singer-songwriters and loved soul music. So as a child, I listened to Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, and stuff like Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, uh, Bill Withers. So all of this music was around me. Um, and this is some of the initial music I liked, along with stuff like Chuck Berry and the Beatles, which I think is a rite of passage for all kids, at least back then. Um, so, so I was exposed to a wide gamut of music, pretty eclectic stuff. But, but what I didn't have in the book was my bedroom was on top of a social club. And this social club was like basically a Coke spot and they played soul and funk music. So it was the Isley brothers and the stylistics, the Delphonics, a lot of the sweet soul stuff from the seventies, Curtis Mayfield was coming up through my floor. And I literally heard that music as well. And then surrounded by Latin music, because I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. So stuff like Willie Colon um, and Hector Laveau were always in the background. And well, well, it's interesting, right, D, even as you're telling this now, and I've noticed this, like which bedroom? Because when I read the book, man, you know, there were these periods of time where, where you guys were homeless and stuff. So like- yeah, That was a little- uh, you know, I'm talking about- yeah, when like, like when was that large? That's early, you know, I'm in grade school, like first, second grade, six, seven years old, um, eight years old. This is this is when I don't want to say my my child was never very stable, but this is a, a, our version of stability for a couple of years. Um, and, and my family's version of stability is not not the typical version of stability. Most people come to think of when they think of having a functional or a stable childhood. Um, and that was like, this is when I first started to really love music. And I think I love music because it was escapist, right? So I could listen to music and not really think about my surroundings so much. It was like maybe my first first time being able to check out my first form of escapism, maybe my first drug. And I've always been obsessed with music ever since I got an allowance. Um, I'd spend my allowance every week. I'm buying a 45, 45s were 75 cents. And I would go to Delancey street with my sister and I go to a place called Bates record store. And I buy like ABC by the Jackson five. And, and as I got a little older, even in maybe nine or 10, I, I heard Bohemian Rhapsody on yeah. the radio. I'll never forget this. And it blew my mind. I, I just, I couldn't fathom. It was so mind boggling. And I went to the record store. By this time I was allowed to go by myself. 
And I, I tried to buy the 45 and I sang it to the guy. And he told me that it wasn't on 45. They only had an album. An album was $3.99 for the, the cutout. And I, I saved my money up. And it's one of the first albums I ever bought. Um, and to this day, I love Queen because that song, it's one of the first times I heard a piece of music. And I just was, I, I was enamored by it because it was so out of my realm of, of thinking. It was so next level it was so grandiose and humongous and and i i always think about that record and whenever i hear freddie mercury's voice i always smile because i'm like that one of those records changed my life well it's interesting because now i mean i so remember that record too and all those i i spent every dollar on records too you know um and it's weird because back when we were kids and this is not something that's easy for people now to understand so well if you want like now everybody can have a soundtrack to their lives Right. Oh, when we were kids, though, you had to like really work to have a soundtrack yeah, yeah, to yeah. your life. We had to find like I'm mean, obviously we both remember when Walkman showed up, but like even like if you wanted to, you had to carry a boombox around with you, or you had to go to places where there was a boombox. And you take like, stuff off the radio when you were a kid. I yeah, had of course. Yeah, sit there with my little radio and tape songs off the radio. I would call the record. I would call the radio station and I would request my favorite song. And I would just wait and wait and wait for it. Uh, one I remember um, when I was 13 is People Who Died. Like I remember LIR, before LIR, before LIR, well, it always makes me, it always made me think of the life you lived because it's so about. Yeah, I mean, Jim Carroll's one of my heroes. Funny you say that because obviously his book is, you know, yes. an amazing book, but it was one of those books I read as a teenager. And I was like, this is my life. Like this is. And I was kind of like, this is my life if I really fuck up. Like, I could go this way. You know what I mean? Um, well, you avoided the heroin. You know, you 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 studiously avoided really becoming a heroin addict. It's a big Well, you know, like, there was positive. no, like, like looking out my window, I saw junkies. Like, you don't win. Like, no one wins that game, right? Very early on, I saw that, like, that's a losing proposition. Right. Right. And you, but, but yet you saw those other things of like the downsides of anger and stuff and you still were oh, and like the drinking and still oh, kind yeah. of leaned in. But what I was going to say about people who died because yeah, Jim Carroll's life, even though he was, you know, he's 20 years older than, than us or whatever. And so he, his, he was talking about in New York that um, the echoes of it were still there when, when yeah. we were coming up. Right. But I do remember like hearing that song on the radio and your book made me get into remembering all these the ways that i we all had to fight for and you know my dad was in the record business but still as a kid i had to find my own way of and i remember sitting there in my bedroom and hearing that record and yeah being like what the fuck is that because they if they don't back announce it back then i mean talk a little bit about the dedication you had to have to figure this because oh, like and and how you we became because like so you would hear half a song if they didn't back announce it you might have to wait buy your thing yeah. for like a day and a half. I mean, that's that was Bohemian Rhapsody. I stayed there all day till I played it again so I could find out what it was because I didn't know what it was. And, right. And, you know, like, so when I was really young, you probably listened to Station 2, WABC, right? Course, and WABC yeah. was super eclectic. It's the first top 40 station in that America. That was when we were very little. That was pre-LIR for me. Seven years old. I used to go to sleep to that station. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. that was, um, and it's funny, I always think that that, that station is very important in the birth of hip hop because on that station, you heard fly like an Eagle by Steve Miller band. And you heard Ben by Michael Jackson and you heard fucking maybe Stevie wonder superstition and you heard captain and Tennille, right? So you heard all these kind of 
weird, different, like diverse, really diverse palette. And I think that a lot of that yeah. ended the DNA of New York City hip hop, right? Where they played records like Fly Like an Eagle and ABC by the Jackson Five. So these records are kind of, this station was at the center of it. And the guys older than me, like Ben Bada and, and Red Alert and Jazzy J, they all tell me they listen to the station, Grandmaster Flash, WABC, which never gets really credited with having anything to do with hip hop. But I always think it's, a key component. And then as we get older, we listen to rock radio. Rock radio is cool and they back announce everything and it's all groovy. And you might not know the name of the song. And and um for me, I remember listening to I wanna say, remember 99X? That was like a station. Yes. So so perfect. So well, yes. And that was the station. It was like basically 99X, that their slogan was 99X is your radio station. Then they have you say 99X is my radio station. Yeah. Right. I totally right. remember it. Yes. And, and and I think I want to say one of it was where 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 music lives, which is basically like where disco sucks without saying it. And and they would backtrack everything. But that's where I discovered uh, the Ramones on a specialty show they had on Sundays and The Clash. So I first heard The Clash, I think it was on either PLJ or 99X. And I'd never The Clash blew my mind. And I heard The Clash before I heard The Sex Pistols. And then I backtracked to the Sex Pistols. Well, you write about that in the book about first hearing The Clash, but also you reference this record. And I wonder how much of this has to do with all of our emotional makeup because you referenced the record, um, Me and Mrs. Jones. And I got to say, like, I remember trying to understand what the fuck that was about when I was seven or eight years old. Yeah, it was like a movie. It was like I could see the story. I didn't, I was like, wait, I don't get it. Like, why is he meeting this lady, Mrs. Jones? And, and I just remember being like, listening to those pop, trying to go to sleep, and every once in a while there'd be this really kind of disturbing record like that one or Into Like the Night Chicago Died. And you would be like, it, it was like all jumbled together because it wasn't like you only could listen to this kind of thing. Right. And I did, did you become, like was music kind of like the consistent thing? Because one thing as I read the book, you know, you told me about a bunch of it, but some of it, you know, your life was so uncertain, Dante. You were... You know, your parents not only split, your mother was an alcoholic, your father had substance problems, he would show up and disappear, you would kind of be able to hang with family friends and they would kick you out, all this stuff. And I'm wondering, was like music your life, in a way, was it one of the things that was a life raft for you? It's one of the things that got me through it, for sure. You know, um, I, I can't tell you why it became that thing, but it was one thing I was always obsessive with. And like I say, it always provided me a safe space right? That form of escapism. And it brought me great joy when there wasn't a lot of great joy in my life as a child. And I always hung on to music. I always had a radio. I always listened to music. I was obsessed with music from a very, very early age. And I do believe it provided a form of salvation for me, you know, and, and later it was reading, right? Reading is the other thing. I love to read and I could always get lost in a book. Yeah, me too. You know, and, and That's what always, I was going to ask you about. It's so like, that was the next thing was, yeah. You started reading then also. And what were you carrying around with you? Like as a third? When I was a little kid, it, yeah. it was it was ironically Judy Bloom as a as a child. One of the first things that I discovered and it spoke to me, right? Whether it was about a girl or a or a guy, a boy, or whatever it was, it spoke to me because it had a vulnerability at the center of it, right? And also um as kids, we all universally feel uncomfortable. Outsider. 
Right. But to read that, to read that vulnerability and that uncomfortability as, as a child um, spoke to me. And, and I read a lot of Judy Bloom type books. And then I graduated to reading um, Ray Bradbury was a favorite of mine. Um, I loved Ray Bradbury. It was lofty stuff, but very imaginative. It took me very far away from my existence. Um, and sports books, of course. I read about every sports book possible. I was a big sports guy. Um, and and then about 12 or 13, I think 12, I got hit to um, J.D. Salinger and Kurt Vonnegut, 12, 13. Right. And, I, I, and I didn't really read, like at a very early age, I stopped reading uh, stuff geared towards teenagers. I wanted to read grown-up stuff. And I would say like um, Vonnegut, Sirens of Titans, and obviously Salinger, you know, were Cash and Rye were huge books for me to read as a child. And they um, they once again showed me um, a slice of life that I could identify with, but was very different from mine. about constantly getting in trouble at school, <laughs> fighting, getting kicked out, barely graduating, you know, all this shit. So what, I always wonder this, like, um, about people who find a different path to success. And you've had, you know, remarkable success over the course of your life. And, you know, I had huge problems with authority when I was a kid. But I'm wondering, like, uh, did you know you were smart? Did you know that there were times where it was like, fuck, I can't, get, I don't know why I can't get myself in line. I don't know why I can't get myself correct. I don't know why I can't just fucking get through eighth grade without making enemies of the entire administration. Or were you just like, they're whack and fuck them. Like, I don't need it. Like, what was your point of view on that? Stuff? Well, I knew I was smart because I got sent to an academically advanced school as a child. So I knew I was, in, you know, I was smarter than most. I was fast tracked as a kid. So so I was aware of my intelligence. Um, and I think sometimes when kids, my niece is kind of like this, she's calmed down a lot, but when you're um, hyper intelligent, you're bored very easily. So what do you do to quell the boredom? You cause trouble, right? You, you're mischievous, you're defiant. So I think that was at, at the center of my DNA a little bit. And the fact that my parents were political activists, which is a form of defiance, I always found a power in being defiant, right? So yes. it was kind of an example that was put forward to me very early on. Um, and, and I felt like at times by questioning teachers or administration, I was, I was almost being an activist, I guess. I was emulating some behaviors I'd seen in my house. And I would say that um, I was one of those kids to a certain age. I was straight A's. And school was always very easy for me. Um, but But I also was like, I'd have like, an A, and then my behavior would be like, you know, needs improvement. Like, well, yeah, I, cause like, like there's this throughout the book, you know, you grapple in a very now adult and very direct way with your anger, rebelliousness, problems with authority, problems when someone steps to you, even when you perceive someone stepping to you, as you say, your ego and, and that combination of ego, alcohol, and anger is like, was the thing that would, you know, and I, I, I wonder what your self sort of introspective thing was back then. Because in the book, what's amazing and why I think this book is something everybody who's ever felt alone should, should which is all of us should, should, should read is like, and I, it's almost like you wish everybody who walks around could show their wounds 
to people so people would understand where they're coming from because right. it comes across like anger and dickishness, right? Uh, but it, really all it is is like fear and hurt. <laughs> um, well, fear, is, fear is at the center of everything, right? All of our negative actions always go back to fear, right? Fear that maybe uh, you're, you're being maligned, you're marginalized, or you're, um, someone's going to take what's yours. There's, there's they say, 112 uh, shades of fear, right? So I always think that fear is at the center of all my negative actions. So, so you right. know, fear of not being seen in a way, fear of not being recognized. Right. I mean, that's one of it. And and then there's like the most base fear, fear that someone's going to take your shit. Right. And right. I grew up. Yes. Dude, I just try and take your shit the way I grew up. So so I developed very early on a strike first mentality um, because I didn't want people to fuck with me. So if someone's going to if I if I was fearful, I pounce. Right. So and that doesn't. That's great when you're 10 years old on your block surrounded by a bunch of maniacs, but that does not serve you well in life, right? The the want, the need to strike first will not help you in corporate America. And I had to learn some of this the hard way. Well, in the in the in the book, you talk about actually that wasn't your instinct. Uh your instinct was toward peace, but your mother like worried about you and you didn't have a father figure around, basically sent right. you back out to go defend yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. And then you realized, you know, and by by the time we get to the part in the book where you, you take Pete's fucking cane and whack a guy in the head, you've <laughs> gone so far from sort of this yeah. kid who was like, well, this seems wrong. But but I had to say like, so this is what was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you'll remember this, but so in the in in the book you mentioned that you and I were maybe going to go start our own company together, which we were. It wasn't originally going to be an Amazon. They a jumble. But I don't know if you know what. This is what really happened. We were about a week away from going. We at first were maybe going to go with my dad, but then we had these other people. You and I found this group that was in the subway, and we were maybe going to work with yeah, these yeah, three kids. Solo. Yeah, we saw these three kids, and there was another group you were going to fold in, and I had had some idea of something that i wanted to grab up i think maybe it was like the kid the, the beautiful that band and this drummer who ended up is guns and roses drummer for the last bunch of years frank farrar but you know i grew up with frank i played basketball with him as a teenager you know I, and so you remember how much i wanted to sign that yeah. band and we could whatever so which i eventually did to the label i went to afterwards but you called me at 4 45 in the morning yeah when well, i like got in a huge fight one night and you go, oh, you do remember, because this is what really happened. Remember you called me at 4.45 or something, and you go, yo, um, some guy just stepped to me in a club. I don't know if it was about a girl or whatever, because I was just waking up, grabbing the phone. And you go, no cell phones, by the way, folks. This is like, we all we Real all club. did this. Like, so we, now everyone has to turn their phone off at night, but we didn't. And like, so if you were in our business, if you dealt with artists, you were like, you got, I mean, I loved the thing where you turned that phone off because you changed your number because they were calling yeah. you all night long. Because like- that was just the way it was. Like you got woken up and that we just dealt with it. But you called me and you're like, some guy stepped to me. I just ran home to get my gun. Yep. Come meet me outside and let's go fucking settle this thing. <laughs> and the irony is like calling you to come and do that is like, I had like 40 other people I pro who probably yes. didn't pick up the phone. Who probably like, you, I'm just not picking up the phone right now. No, I think you called me because you knew I would talk you down. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, if you really think about why you called me, yeah, first yeah. of all, you called me because we were together every minute. Reason. <laughs> and I remember just staying on the phone with you and talking you out of fucking doing it. But I then I woke up the next day and I was like, 
I cannot go into business with this fucking guy <laughs> and uh, because I'm going to end up in jail. But the, but and, and, and it was amazing that the thing of that is like you were one of that and have always been like one of the smartest people I know, one of my favorite people, someone I respected the shit out of. Like I did always think you knew what was coming next. I also knew you were a loyal person. And I also was someone like you who would say fuck you to authority. But like I was raised by two loving parents in a protected environment and you were raised yeah. by people who loved you but didn't know how to protect you. And Ooh. that meant you had to fend in a way that everything seemed like a level 10 attack to you. So everything meant we got to fight and risk our lives for it. And yeah. it was such a gulf. And it, it, it's, you know, I've thought about it a lot over the years and like, you and I haven't talked about that in 30 years and you immediately remember it too. Oh yeah, so, I remember. And, I, and, and I, I feel like it was in retrospective the best thing for us not to do it together. But then I also, I wonder, we, we might've been really successful. Oh, you know, we would have had a big 20s and early 30s would have been incredible for sure. Yeah, no, we, we, it could have no been a thing. And, and I also thought that I remember when you went to SBK, I did have a meeting there about something and I, I, I didn't do it there. I did it at Atlantic um, while I worked at Electra. And I, I always was like, maybe I should have done it over there with Brian. I never, you know, I was always like. Oh, no, I have these great memories. I'll tell you something. No, dude, you did two incredible things. I just want to say like, no, um, we were always loyal to each other. And over the years, I'll say like Dante and Amy, my wife, you know, if you listen as a filmmaker, you've heard her. They've worked on stuff together and always been supporting. Amy read early versions of this book and all, all that stuff. And, and um, we're all family for sure and have always loved each other. But dude, you did two amazing things, man. There was a period of time. If this isn't in the in the book, I don't I, I don't think. But there was that moment in between when you first. I mean, you talk a lot, obviously, about House of Pain. But there was this moment, if you recall, when you didn't have a place to sign House of Pain to, and you slipped it to me, and I did. and I ran it up the whole. You were like, you got to hear this fucking thing, and I got it instantly. You played me jump, and I brought it to the whole company, to everybody, and then we couldn't. You couldn't quite get it out of where. It was destined to to go. Tommy plays where it went. Right, because I remember you were like, but I don't think Monica and you were had that as you talk about strained moment with her. So yeah, yeah. and I didn't I didn't want to sign it to Electra, and this is like, in retrospect, I should have probably done it, but I was fearful that the white group I signed in the midst of all these black guys who were like five percenters and, and, you know, kind of like angry at the world would have that just were your made... artist, the artist you'd signed just for people listening. Right. He's saying the people who were his allies and he'd produced their records and made their beats. And right. But, but I felt like if I signed them and I had brand new ones here and Buster here and this guy here and that guy there, it's going to make my life miserable. I'm like, you know, and it's always kind of weird when a, white guy signs another white artist. So I didn't do it, but I did know that was a fucking hit record. And, you know, I should have done it. I should have been like, groups and signed it. You brought it to, I remember you came to my office and you're like, dude, I, I heard this thing. You got to hear it. And I remember running around the halls of that place. That was years later. Cause I went the part in the, I didn't go to, I went from, I went from Electra to giant records. And then I was oh, a I giant. Forgot about I forgot that about I was a giant for a year and a half for two That's years. That's how you know, Gary. That that's when Gary and I became so close. Yes, Gary Harris, who inside player, one of the legends who's gone. I mean, I was at his funeral and stuff. We stay, you know. So, yes, that's why Gary was in the office next to me at Giant. And so Gary and I combo. <laughs> yeah, but you know, our birthdays are one day apart, and like the gambling, it was like a lot of 
his this sorry folks um this guy Gary well, is the most remarkable you guys meet right there on the you know it's basketball time well and I could beat him in you know I will say you ducked me for 10 years because you heard that you should duck me but you did duck me on the court for a long time and I finally <laughs> got Gary out and I beat Gary and it drove him crazy but it won the all it was like the ultimate respect thing that I could beat him in one-on-one you know, you smartly would never actually play one-on-one against me. <laughs> so I remember being like, those West Side courts, I'll show up tomorrow. But um, you know, this is what I was going to say, dude. The other thing that you did, one of the greatest things, and I just want to say this to you, like the very last year I was doing a, a, that job, you call me and you go, there's this guy named Peter Edge, and he's having trouble getting this girl signed. She's 16 years old, and her name's Alicia Cook. And you got to... You got to get this guy. And, I, and you got me that tape of Alicia. And that's Alicia Keys. And again, it was a kind of thing. For some reason, you couldn't do it. I don't know why. I don't but, think they were like, sign R&B stuff. I think they just like never believed in me signing And that. somehow Peter couldn't get her signed at that time. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. But you somehow got this tape that had Peter's name on it. And she had, was covering the Prince song. Why don't you? How come you don't call me anymore? And two other things that were her originals. And like, I went on this crazy pursuit to try to sign her because so twice you reached out and you were like, this is amazing thing and you're going to understand it. And I think you Jermaine Dupri signed. I think she signed to Jermaine Dupree at that point and never came out. And then Peter signed her years later. What happened was she was signed to this production company, Jeff Robinson. That guy. And that guy somehow uh, yeah. we, we felt like, oh, and then she played for me in like this little room at SIR. And I was like, I freaked out. I chased as hard as I could. I was like, she's going to be the biggest star in the world. And so your ears, like I just, that's the thing. So Dante talks in the book about what's called a record man. It used to be called record person. I think people probably still use record man. You know, Sue Drew's a great record man, but like yeah. Karen Berg was a great record man, but, and people having ears and like Dante had some of the best ears in the business. And was around incredible artists and then became a producer. But, but you know, you don't, it's weird. Like um, you don't really talk so much or you probably didn't have it. You almost present it like until you saw very clearly that opportunity, you hadn't really thought about career. Like I want to be a, a record person. You know, and, my career, my career pursuit was not going to jail. Right. That but dealing drugs and not going to jail, like that was yeah. your thing. dealing weed and not going to jail, basically, right? And and but you also talk about that even at that time, like um, the music became so important that you were going to all these clubs. Yeah. And you talk about going to clubs solo, and you talk about how to get a doorman. So I just think it'd be useful for the for people listening to this. What should somebody do if they want to be in a town and they want to sort of like be able to go to all the places and watch all the groups and. How do you do the thing where you go alone and get to know the guys at the door? Like what you go, I figured it out, but talk about what it means. I think one of it, like one thing is I always notice I could get in anywhere by myself. So I can always schmooze my way in dolo. So I almost never would go with like people to places. I'll meet you there. I'm always like, I'll meet you there. Right. So I don't have to wait for you. You don't have to wait for me. And I can always get myself in. So that was one of it. And the other thing is be polite. 
always be polite and dress cool. If you dress cool, act like you should be inside, but you're polite. Hey, man, my name is Dante. How are you? And I'll let you in usually. You can usually finesse it. I don't think it works that way anymore. Now they want you to go buy a bottle. But back then it worked. And if you had a business card of any sort, even if you make your own business card and you give them the business card, that always helped. So this like was- Like I'm an A&R person or whatever. But right, exactly. before that even, right? You were doing that yeah. sort of- I, I was blessed as a really young kid. I went to see this band called Sham 69, 1980. I was into New Wave and they were a punk rock band. And I went to a place called Haraz and I bought a ticket. It was $5, me and my friend John. We went there, we were 14 years old and we skateboarded up. And this guy was a doorman, his name was Howie Montauk. And he became the, he had worked at Studio 54. He became a doorman at Danceteria and he thought we were cool. And he was like, how old are you guys? And I was like 16. He goes, tell me how old you really are. And I might let you in. Huh. I told him who huh. I was. I said, I'm 14. And he's like, you guys are really cool. Like, come in. And this guy, like the luck of the draw, he worked the door at every club. So whether it was Danceteria or the Palladium later on or area, he'd see me in a sea full of people and go like, Dante, who are you with? And let me in. So I was really lucky. I was a, um, I was uh, a young kid who went out when that was a really cool novelty thing to do. So, man, I, I was really blessed. Me and my friends, the Beasties, and our whole crew of people, we got into every club very early on. And I realized, in retrospect, that we were part of the draw, if this makes sense. To have the youngest, coolest kids in Manhattan at your club was cool. So they wanted us there because we brought an energy that was important to the dynamic of, of the nightclub and to, you know, venues at that point in time, which doesn't exist anymore. Did you have a business card before David had a business card? Like that was the, the beastie's friend who passed away. What's yeah, his Dave's last name? Okay. David's- I, I think, I think he might've, we're neck and neck. He might've inspired me to get a business card. That's what I was wondering because his was just like, I'm all it said was his name. You know, I remember from, I know you didn't tell the story cause they told it in their book, but when you guys yeah. came to my sister's, yeah, uh, I know that's why you didn't tell it, but, um, right before we formally met, I remember that you guys showing up and him having that card. <laughs> he was probably trying to be like cool. Like he was trying to like make it work for himself. Um, Dave might've had the first business card. I remember my friend Eric Hayes had a business card uh, way back and I thought that was cool too. So I wanted a business card. And as an office messenger, I did get a business card and it didn't say messenger on it. I can't remember what it said, but I had a Rush Productions business card that like I finessed. Amazing. Right. And then, so when you were around, so, so Dante, you were, you were around. Oh, my job was tour coordinator on my card. So what that meant was I sent out advanced material for tour. I actually did do that. Right. But so then, but you made sure you had the card. It said rush on it, which was the cool thing at the time. There are a few different moments in the book where I got really kind of, te- I kind of like teared up. And I, because the book, so much of the journey of any of us is like this desire to be seen for the best of who we are or to be recognized for like what is inside of you that's not inside of anybody else, but that's the empathetic, alive part or the special part. Or, and mm-hmm. this moment when I think it's Ad Rock who has the verse. Spit some bars about no, you. No, it's MCA. Oh, it's MCA who spit some bars about you. Um, all right, Adam Yawk, when it spit some bars about you. And you realizing it later somehow, like you kind of missed yeah. it. Yeah, um, well, because the vocals it, are fucking buried too. They're like mad low, so you can't really hear them. 
But the li- lyrics are basically about the fact that you were making your own sound, like you were yeah, yeah. doing it. Yeah, and yeah. when I read it, I got emotional because I was like, that's all this kid Dante wanted. Like, all he wanted was somebody to go, yeah, I see you. And I see that it's in you. And here was this guy who meant so much to you, this this group of people that you were in and out with and all that shit. But they kind of went like, look. And I just wonder, you know, you kind of write it off in the book a little bit. You're like, yeah, I didn't even notice till later. But I felt like if it hit me that hard reading the book because it felt like they were giving you a hug that you needed. I just wonder what it felt like to you and also what it feels like to you now to know that I mean, that's there on that record. I, th- I think back then I was um, kind of oblivious a little bit in the moment. I was like doing so much shit. I didn't realize the the, the weight of it um, because the Beasties are my friends forever. So I never really like, how can I say it? Like so many people, um, so many people are just like, all over them all the time and just you know i'm i was never that almost the opposite almost like fuck those guys like those are my fucking schmuck friends like you know what i mean so you know like i never kind of rode that the gravy train um that was the beastie boys that's not my vibe i remained um a friend of theirs and 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 probably um one of the few people who was probably brutally honest around them um about a lot of shit so me and Adam were good friends. And at that time period, he was, he had moved to New York. He lived on spring street in this little, a little fucking ass apartment that basically had a stereo bed and his upright base. So we'd hang out a bunch. Then he was kind of like, I think um, he was hard to explain it, but he was trying to find something that was missing. He was trying to fill like a void in his life by getting back in touch with like being on the ground, if that makes sense. Um, And and we hung out a lot during this period. And um, it didn't mean that much to me then. And it was so typical of him not to ever mention it, right? Like he would never be like, oh, I said your name in a song. Because that would be like, you know. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, of course. That would well, never first happen. of all, you should be listening and you should know in his mind. Right. right? And I mean, may- maybe maybe more it's just like so offhanded. Like it didn't it didn't really, you know, it was just a thing. And um, in retrospect means a lot more because he passed, right? And of all those guys, um, I had a unique relationship with him that was, he was always in my corner, if that makes sense. He, where Mike always kind of made fun of me and I don't know Adam that well. Um, Mike was always, you know, like kind of mutually condescending to each other, like sarcastic where Yauk was um, equally sarcastic, but always in my corner, always wanted me to do well, always wanted to see me do something and stay out of trouble. Um, And we got in a lot of trouble as kids. I was one of the guys who probably, uh, yeah, me and him caused a lot of mischief together. So it means more in retrospect than it did at the time. And and it's cool that your friend who you absolutely respect, and I super respected him as a musician beyond just being in the Beastie Boys, um, gave me props. You know, and he he was um, a very unique individual. There was no one I've ever met like him who was like, um, he's the guy who put the dick on stage. There's no doubt about it. And then he's the guy who like, you know, did the Milarepa thing. Right. And the, the like contrast between these two human beings in one life, um, you know, I guess very inspiring. Um, and, and I think he tended to see, um, the good in me more than the crazy, which is always, well, cool. I also wonder, and you talk about this, their evolution, you know, your own evolution, whether it was a little bit slower, kind of does mirror their evolution. You know, well, you have to remember that those guys also come from like much better 
backgrounds than me. They're more acclimated. So, so you know, Mike D has no, you know, his evolution is going to be mom's a billionaire or a millionaire. So, yeah, we have very different. Um, my collar is always a lot bluer than theirs. So we have different different paths to get to where we get to. Um, and, you know, man, you get there when you get there, man. You know what I mean? And did hopefully you send Mike and did you send, did you send Mike and, and Harlow yeah, the, the book? I sent Mike a book and Adam actually bought the book and hit me up the other day. And he was like, yo, you wrote about my mom. That was so cool. It made me like, I got very emotional. And I remember the time that your mom, he, he told me the story that I, I vaguely remembered. Um, he's like, the one time I met your mom, for reasons unknown, we all decided to go see Ran by Kurosawa at the Plaza Theater in Midtown. We were like feeling ourselves and like we all like half hour in, we're taking a nap. And he's like, I remember looking back and your mom was looking at us smiling. And I think she was happy that uh, we were seeing an incredibly pretentious, wonderful movie, um, not out in the street getting in trouble. And um, I've been actually talking to him like intermittently via text the last couple of the last week or two, which has been kind of cool. Oh, I'm really so happy to hear that because in the, you know, you do put these little things out there in the book that are like owning who you are and also being like, yeah, it would have been cool if we all could have been in this way and stayed super connected, but we all had yeah. to go on our lives. And I wondered, I had a feeling that those guys would reach out again. I mean, I know you're still always in touch, but I'm saying that those guys would acknowledge because the other thing is. You did such a good job on the book, Dante. So I want to spend some time on. Yeah, I know how long you were. I mean, I know how long you were writing it for, man. And yeah, and in intervals, you know what I mean. You write it, then you throw it away, and then you write it, then you pick it back up. So you know, it's like it, it did take a really long time. And this is the benefit of being someone like you or someone like me, which is uh, the way that you are fucking honest with people about their work. I'm honest with people, and so I always the reason one of the main reasons I am is. You know, you've sent me stuff over the years when I've been like, it's not ready yet. So you know that when I, like, those are hard words to say yeah, to yeah. someone you respect so much, but I've said yeah. them. And here, I'm telling you, this is not only ready, but like, you crushed it. You know, you did Thank the thing. You. And like, I was so happy that you did it. It's so well written. And you, you know, sentence by sentence, it's so well written. The thought process is so clear. I would like you to have spent more time on the post-1995 of it all in a way. You know, it's so front-loaded. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you certainly lived a lot of interesting shit from then forward. But it is really is a cousin to, to Basketball Diaries. And not as fucked up. What's great about it is, you know, Basketball Diaries about Jim's whole life, sadly, though Jim had these incredible highs of life and got to be received as this kind of like a walking saint by artists. And but but mostly Jim's is the story of one of the greatest talents never achieving it. Yeah, Whereas, like he peaked very early. Uh, well, and and like even even Catholic Boy, that album was made in the fucking seventies, like yeah, yeah. you know late seventies, and never he never he, he never got back there. But yours is a story of like. Fucking Little Dickie's got the biggest show on TV. So, I mean, a couple of things. You, did, you ever, did you ever meet Jim Carroll? Because I met, I knew him a little bit. So I, I knew. Couple, yes, I knew him. I knew him because of Lenny K. So Lenny and me, um, I met him at Electra. Lenny K is a genius. We all know he was in Patty Smith Group, produced a bunch of records. He made the Ruby. No, it's yeah. He made. Yeah, and so, he did, you know, Suzanne Vega. Lenny's with Mike right. Adab with Adabo, Steve Adabo. He's great. I love Lenny. I've known him forty years. Yeah. So me and Lenny. We met during the Rubia making and me and him 
were like kindred spirits. We became really good friends. He lived on on Second Avenue and Third Street. Me and him would um go record shopping and and go eat at the Corner Bistro. Well, and he we loved that bookstore. He loved that bookstore that was down near St. Mark. That St. Mark's bookstore. He loved he that loved, bookstore I mean, right there. Yeah, yeah, he you know, he was like my guy and we would go to fucking Strider Records, all these record stores and buy records. And he was just a really good dude. So I I wanted to meet Jim and I met Jim with him. And um it w- it was um it was kind of sad. Jim was he was on methadone for yeah. a real for like 25 years. And he kind of was he was living in his parents' old apartment in Washington Heights. And that's I believe where he died. Um, you know, he was married to Rosemary and and all this stuff, but you know, he he really um you know he, he was like a testament to drugs. Like it was like, you know, and well, your and book I, is about, but this is what I was gonna say, your book is a story that goes it's like you can see all the ways all the nights honestly that you got angry enough to go take your gun back to a club but somehow found a way not to (laughs) pull a a trigger seriously man like where you actually bettered yourself and like actually transcended your environment got sober and like kept having success even when you would blow shit up you would find a way what choice do we have at a certain point you have you have you have to put it down. And I have friends who haven't put it down. And I'm not just talking about drugs and alcohol. I'm talking about the baggage. You have to put it down. If you don't unpack that shit, you will carry it the rest of your life. And what kind of life is that? You know, the bird, you know, my shoulders are fucking, I don't want them to be heavy, man. So at one point in my life, I just had to like really be honest with myself and say like, I got to put this shit down. And, you know, part of getting sober, it's like, first it's the, the, the alcohol. For me, it was the alcohol and the drugs a little bit. But you put that down, but then you realize that you have to put down all this other stuff that's the cause of it, right? What is the reason I'm I'm drunk? What is the reason I have these anger issues? And you have to do a lot of um a, a lot of soul searching. You have to be very aware of yourself, self-aware, and you have to be honest. And if you're gonna move on with yourself, your being, and become the person you truly want to be, you have to deal with this shit. And I always said. I always say this when I talk about sobriety. I was um, a fearless person. I'll go anywhere. I'll fight anyone. Like, I'm not scared of anything, but definitely afraid of dealing with myself and my own being, right? That is the scariest shit in the world. And I had to get sober to understand this, right? I had to get sober to say, like, I have this big shell, all this armor, and I'm fearless, but I'm definitely afraid of being the person I really am. And in being sober, I learned this. And and that allowed me to um, redirect my life and live the life I should have probably led long before. But it happens when it's supposed to happen. So I'm not a very religious person. I do believe in a higher power of sorts. So there's this thing called grace. And when grace is shown to you, take that motherfucker. And there's lots of times when grace has been presented to me and I didn't take that thing. This is one of the times when I was smart enough to say, let me take this piece of grace that's being offered to me by something bigger than myself. And I took it and it changed my entire life and the and the way I think that and a lot of therapy. And that all really tracks for who you are and who you've become and actually what was always in you because I always loved you because I always saw to the center of who you were. Well, from well the re- moment reason we being is though, because I showed you that. So a lot of people I never show that to because I don't trust them, right? Yes. And I'm I'm a very I'm not a very trusting individual. And as um I got sober and I kind of found a spiritual way of living my life, it's much easier for me to present that with with people because I'm not scared. 
Right. No, that makes uh, that makes total sense to me. And for whatever reason, we were so young and in that situation. And yes, we showed each other ourselves in a very true way when we were young. Um, and it's well, we also had a thing that we met on music. We we both had a real passion for this thing, and we're surrounded by these guys who are like, "Oh, those kids." Oh. Uh-huh. Wait, you just said something so important, which is also our curiosity, because. I had John, like, so what happened to me was John Schechter, who you and I both love, Shecky Green, John Schechter, um, who started The Source with uh, another guy, his like childhood closest friend was my good friend at college, this guy, Mike Feldman. And Mike, Money Mike, still my dear friend, actually, he taught me about hip hop at college. He was the first who played me BDP. He told me he was Scott LaRock. Like he educated me, but that was the only part of that education I had. And then the rest of it was from you. And that wow. was like, right? I remember I was so open and curious about it. And you were curious about, you knew rock music, but you were curious about, because you love Tracy, you were curious about my world. And so yeah. we were open enough and we were guys who like the outside world when we were young looked at both of us like, oh, these kids actually know everything, but we knew we didn't know everything. And like, so we could ask each other questions. And that was like a big deal, right? To have a kid yeah. that you could go, so I remember asking you, you, you explaining to me about these these groups and the different kinds of it, and you know why De La was important, and when Tribe came along, why Tribe Matt? Like we would have these conversations in a really like interesting way about. I mean, I was always music. fascinated by the fact that you were working with Motley Crue. That Hilarious, to me, was, I know. Just like I'm like, oh my god, he's working with Motley Crue. What the fuck is that like? Like, you know, you no, know, of course, man, and, and 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 like so. When I was when I was reading the book and I'm, you know, you hold these ideas of like who this person is and who they were. One thing is I noticed that like a bunch of the records that you worked on that maybe didn't do as well, you have these kind words for. But then sometimes your hit records, a few of them, like two or three of records of yours that were massive successes. You kind of still kind of shit on yourself a little bit. You're like, I don't like this part of pop goes the weasel. I don't like I don't, this I part don't of like the it. drum sound. I don't like the drum sound on uh, one of the Grand Poobah hit. Like, and it was like um, on one of the Brand Nubian records. And I was like, can't Dante just like fully complete the integrating of love and himself? And you did a great job on those records. That's why people love those records, man. Yeah, and- but you, you know, it's kind of like um, it's it's almost like listening to your voice on a podcast. Like you don't yeah. ever want to hear yourself back. It's like horrible, right? So um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but there's records I made and you hear them and you don't hear the part people love. You hear the part that you hate, the thing you wish you could change, right? And and I got to a point where I made a bunch of records where like, I never want to hear that again because I just don't like how it sounds or I didn't like the experience of making a record. You know, one thing I realized when I think about their bass because I never fucking got paid for those records. I don't want to hear them ever. When I Well, okay, when I, I heard that biking home last night. So I, I, what's great about this book is I read the book at the same time I was listening to, I was doing both. So it would just be with me the whole time. So yesterday I was bi- bicycling on the West side and I heard that part about you. How did you not get paid? You produced the record. So I, I got my advance. I had to wait a really long time to get my back end. It was a pittance. And we've never seen a royalty statement from Def Jam. Um, Def Jam has um, traditionally been between distributors and I believe used that not to pay me and a litany of people. And it's a real big point of contention, especially since they're at UMG, who has the craftiest accounting of all major labels. So I never, I've never seen, I haven't seen a royalty statement on record in 15 years, 20 years, and I've never made a dime on it. Platinum single, never made a dollar outside well, of my 
Have you done an audit? I did an audit and they, I think the samples ate a lot of stuff. I did an audit 15, 16 years ago and you can only go back uh, eight years and now it's only three years and those records don't stream and Universal is really, um, they acquired the catalog via Sony who got a polygram then it went to them. So third party and chasing that shit is impossible. Julian Petty wants to go chase it for me now. He keeps saying that and I've also... Um, Incidentally, I never saw a royalty on anything at Electra outside of my A&R royalty. I never saw a producer royalty. Yeah, I can't. I mean, who knows how that all went. Yeah, also these bands got big advances. There's lots of samples. Um, well, and, as you say, Brand Nubian didn't really sell through. You know, it yeah. didn't really sell through. No. Although people would kill for those record sales today. But also, remember, things are crossed. So you have five records that are crossed and as records get a little bit Cross of success, collateralized next, yeah right next record costs more money to make bong 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 and it goes down the line i mean i also feel like there is a lot of crafty accounting in this world well no on the film so you have no idea i've never worked on a film that was according to the accounting people profitable except uh one of the except like you know um probably an indie movie where there's like it is even though it did very little uh at the box office somehow that Steven Soderbergh might be the only honorable man in the business. And, and Steven Soderbergh gave Dave and me uh, gross points on um, girlfriend experience. So even though that movie didn't do anything, we've actually gotten checks from right. that movie because he's right. honorable and honest. And he's just like passes it through when it shows You're up. You're also not standing behind like, you know, whatever Brad Pickup paid to do this or whatever it is, right? So you're stand not standing behind a $100 million budget. You know, it was interesting to me when you would describe the way that you made these records as a producer, you and and John and GB. And I remember coming to your studio down there uh, a couple, a couple, a couple nights. I can't no the West Beth one, right? It wasn't yeah, in the yeah. basement there. Yeah, I remember yeah. coming a couple times and um, you digging. And I love the way look. If you're interested in all how hip hop records are made, I know they were made when it was primarily samples. You know, we've gone back and forth between samples and programming and all that stuff over over time. And it's also fascinating, even though in, in the book you're describing moments where you fought to get proper recognition for your work, I find that now you're trying to hand off credit to all these people and say, like, they did so much and I did so little. And I just want to say, like, I saw you put the work in and you did do the work and you did find the beats and you found the acts and you put the whole shit together. And I like you should at least celebrate that you made these. You did I make do, these. I do, but, but, but I feel like it's 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 a metaphor for an A&R person in a sense. We're not that fucking important. Right. We're yeah, really for sure. And, and as a producer, sometimes I was more important than others. Like I would say on Whitey Ford, I was very important. Like I really had a lot to do with that. But there are other times when I didn't do that much. And I got a lot of the accolades in my life um, because I had an A&R job and I'm, you know, I'm fucking a colorful individual. Um, and a lot of accolades came my way that my partners didn't get. And I felt it was important to give them some of the accolades. What's the record you and Everlast did on Santana? Put your lights out. Right. So that's a massive, massive, massive success that led to the massive success you and Everlast had together on his you know, solo album at the time. It's actually the other way around. The reverse. Yeah. yeah the one yeah. thing and then that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
Exactly. So. Um, so, but did you guys, you got paid on that stuff? I, oh yeah. I all that, by that time, by the time I did Whitey Ford Sings the Blues, I got paid. Like, and I made sure I got paid and I had a great manager who I fired because he couldn't get along with Everlast manager. And I never should have fired him. His name was Terry Lipman. You probably knew him. Uh, he yeah, passed of course I knew when Terry. He got yeah. into ALS. Um, but Terry is the one manager I ever had who was a phenomenal manager, made me a lot of money. And he just, him and Carl Stubner were butting heads and I listened to Stubner and I let him go. And I should have, I always regretted it. Um, Terry was the best. He killed for me and he got me a lot of money. I just want to say Terry Lippman, man, I, I thought he was one of the sweetest people. And, Nicest guy. And it's incredibly horrible ALS because you said grace, but a different meaning of grace. He was one of the most graceful athletes I ever saw in my life. I don't know if you ever played sports with Terry, yeah, but I he was basketball. an unbelievably gifted athlete. Yeah, and man. that was and really coordinated. I spent a lot of time playing hoop with him. And that dude, Lefty J, and he was such um he was a sweet guy and a beautiful athlete. One of those guys who's actually unselfish as an athlete. He's so gifted that like he wasn't trying to prove anything. In life, too, that dude was not really out to prove shit. He was you know, he- he had a terrible falling out with his brother and it, it yeah. affected his his kind of um trajectory a little bit but but he was he's the guy who found matchbox 20 amongst millions of other things um yeah, he, he was he, a, he was he was one of the sweet i wrote michael when he was one of the sweet people i know that they had a falling out but they also had a I, lot I, of I talked to him together. when he was in his life while he was going through it you know and Gibby died of als too so als terrible thing to witness and um terry held me down. He made sure I got my money. Um, I, I left him for Steve Moyer, who, um, I, I worked with twice and I, I gotta say, I, I much prefer working with Terry. Steve was tough. Steve never did shit. I don't, I met Steve a couple of times. I don't really know him. I can't, I can't comment. Nice but, guy, um, but you know, he was, he was no Terry Lipman. I, I, I hear you. Can you just talk about sort of what are you doing right now? Other than the, so you wrote the book, was it you started the book like in 2009 it was going to be with your pop yeah what did writing this book give to you what did you learn about yourself writing the book that was actually my first question i had like i was like how much discovery happened in the writing of the book for you well when i you know i, I learned there's different phases what i learned was when i got sober and picked the book back up that uh when i was drinking i was a shitty writer who catered to his ego so, so that was, and I, I, I had this illusion that was like Charles Bukowski, but I was no Charles Bukowski. Um, and um, as I, you know, like I really buckled down on the book in the pandemic um, and kind of rewrote the whole thing. It was very cathartic. Um, it was, and it was tangible. I could see my growth as a human being. And it, it was nice to look back and see um, the transformative aspects of my life and to see them very clearly. Um, and also to understand that um, my beginning, uh, the early years of my life, are very important to the later years of my life. They they are the foundation for a lot of the stuff that I um, end up evolving into. It was cathartic to throw that stuff up on paper. Is uh, it's a relief of sorts, um, and I felt like I I got to explain myself. Um, in a way that maybe would make me make more sense to people who only know me from the outside looking in. So those are some of the things I I learned. And I learned that I enjoy the written word. I like writing. I've written a bunch of stuff since then. If I had one thing I could change would be, because I've written all this other stuff since then, 
I'm a much better writer now than when I wrote the book, I think. And I wish there were some things I could change, but I think you'll always feel that way about everything you do. Like making a record. I wish I could add that snare different or whatever it is. So so that's one thing. Um, and um, I learned that. Um, so I, I don't know if I learned this, but a friend of mine hit me to this when I was writing a book. He said, whatever you do, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Right. Yes. And I, yes. that, I found that. Uh, people really related to the parts of the book where I'm vulnerable. And I think that that's an important lesson to, to um, learn and to understand that um, all of us are, have these universal truths and to share those universal truths um, is an important thing to do. It, It connects you with people. And to me, that was one of the great lessons that don't run away from your vulnerability, embrace your vulnerability. Well, yeah, I thought it was beautiful in the book that you talk about the fact, cause you know, so much of the outer affect for so long was like, I can walk into any room and I'm gonna be the toughest guy in the room. But for you to actually reveal you were scared, you didn't know, you lost a lot of fights and to look at yourself and go, where was that coming from? And I Mm -hmm. felt like, and also it felt like you had so much forgiveness for your family members in the book, even as you held them to account, it felt like you like, where it was an amazing act of empathy. I think this book is so empathetic, D, that like you, even the people you still have disagreements with, you're like, okay, there's a chasm. This is my side of it. I understand. Even, you know, you write about your sister not defending you and you say to end that section, you're like, yeah, she really let me down there. But you then go, even though lots of times she was there and did defend me. And I thought that was really beautiful. Like trying to really 360 everybody in a way. Right. Well, you know, there's there's your truth, the other person's truth, and the truth is probably in the middle, right? And I think a lot of that stuff I learned in sobriety. Um, you know, yeah. so so those are all sober lessons. Um, and um, the way I view it isn't always the way it is. You have to practice some acceptance. And part of being sober is um, you have to forgive to be forgiven. And that includes forgiving yourself. Um, so, you know... Um, the act of forgiveness is is a very difficult act for for most people, myself included. And I can't say I always am fantastic at it, but to try and exercise some form of forgiveness, well, that you know, I talk about that that baggage you got to put down, that weight on your shoulders that allows you to put it down and allows you to keep it moving. Because you know, we all know that holding on to these resentments and. Granted, I, I've held on to probably too many still. To let those resentments go is is a great relief. Giving space to that bullshit in your head does nothing good for you. It's just giving someone free rent in your head. So why do it? And what do you think is it, Dante, that so many people just have one like kind of moment in their lives when they're in touch with what's going on. But, you know, you've been able to, even as an older person, unearth artists, realize they're special, help get them to the world. Like, Little Dicky, right? You you had an uh, involvement in in helping launch his. I signed Little Dick. yeah, and Ma- Macklemore too, right? Yeah, um, and, and you know, Dicky is a good one because I got to actually do A and R stuff. I um, I signed him, and look, like I'm. There's no illusions about where we stand in culture. In 1994, I'm not signing Little Dicky. I didn't sign House of Pain, right? So, you you know, but you move on and you understand it's a business. Maybe you can't. You're not going to be able to sign Kendrick Lamar like every day. That that doesn't come along like it used to. So I signed Dickie and I was friends with Fetty Wap's manager. 
And I had the idea when he gave me Save That Money to put Fetty Wap on the record. So I actually got to make that happen. And I believe that's why that record was such a big hit. Um, and it's not hard to do stuff like that if you have someone who's a willing participant. And Dickie was with the program. I can't tell you that me and Dickie are incredibly close these days, but that's also part of the nature of the business. You, um, The bonds that we made, the way we worked back in the day, is not how we work today. And well, sure. Not- and also, you know, you've been upfront publicly about the, your opinion of him as a rapper. I mean, I will say like in my house. He's a fantastic rapper, but, but where he stands culturally is not where I stand culturally. Yeah. You I know? would just say in my house, I don't know if you've talked to Amy about this, but Amy thinks he's like the greatest genius. And she thinks his show, she's uh, obsessed. His with show him. is genius. His yeah, show she, is his She show thinks he's a genius and so am I. Like, I, she thinks he's a total genius. She talks about him all the time. So, I mean, him and Jeff Schaefer did a hell of a job with that show. Um, he is, he see, like, Dickie's a strange person because one thing I like about him is he completely owns himself. Um, yes. he he's pretty sans white guilt. Where, where a guy like Macklemore, he has a lot of white guilt, right? Where Dickie's like, oh, I'm unrepentantly little Dickie and like me or don't like me, I'm going to be famous and that's it. And he told me, way before the show was anything that he would have a hit TV show. He sat there and told me this shit and manifested it. He, Him and Rizzo are the only two people I think I've ever worked with, the Beastie Boys as well, who absolutely knew what the end result would be. They're like, this is what it's going to be. Well, yeah, this is an amazing thing for artists to read if you're someone who wants to, the section of the book about Dante and Wu-Tang. And actually, you know, even though you're just telling the story about ODB, about him, like what's amazing is as you read the book these are not just it's like about a person but it's also about these archetypes and it's about giving in to demons or finding a way to resist the demons and you know dante's eye is so your eye is so good and your ability to recognize what someone it's almost like you you have in your head d when you write about this shit like you have the path the person took but you also kind of have the path that they could have took and you're you're aware of like where the talent could take and then some people they go on that ride the beasties right. went on the ride yeah and then odb went on part of the ride but then the he ultimately the demons got him right and and most people aren't aren't built to be the beastie boys they're really um you know those guys are they have like a strong foundation as human beings so a guy like Old Dirty Bastard isn't prepared for the fame and fortune that comes his way. Very few of us are, me included. Very few of us are built for this. But, you know, those guys had a really, like, solid kind of foundation. So they were functional human beings. When RZA, when, yeah. When RZA, in the, when, in the book, when RZA, sort of you float an idea to RZA, and RZA's like, that's not how this is going to go. And in the way he, yeah. the way, unlike other people who might have stood up, to thing where you're like, uh, Riza, it was clear just in that little meeting, the first one before he comes to your office, a week, he was like, yeah, you're, it's great. I see that you see me, but you are only seeing this much of it. Let me explain. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind he, of amazing now to look back and know that guy knew that everything. That guy, man, he's one of the most amazing dudes in, in that way where he told me, I'm going to give you your first goal record. I'm putting dirty here. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, I believe that he already knew he was going to put him on a lecture before he was on a lecture, right? He was just waiting for me to reach out to him. He was like completely playing chess. Um, and he's an amazing person because- on the surface, he, he would not appear to be that articulate. 
He, you would not see, you would not see the intellect, at least in 1995. It wasn't so apparent. He had a very um, unique way of presenting his thoughts and ideas. Um, I saw it because we speak the same language, but the guy has been, he's an example of someone who like, there are no boundaries. Right. And as a child, I kind of was, I was kind of hip to that. I saw Keith Haring become this thing. Like I saw like the Beastie Boys and Rick Rubin become this thing. I saw people like Fab Five Freddy become this thing. And I was like, it's obtainable. Like you can dream really fucking big because you can create your own future if you dream big. And I don't know if I dreamed as big as those guys, but I definitely was like one day it was apparent to me that I could probably do something significant in the music industry. I had a guy named Mark Caymans who passed away, who told me I would be a great A&R guy when I was really young. And then Russell and Andre Harrell, Gary, Nelson George, all would pick my brains for what was really happening in the streets. What's this? What's that? And I realized one day that I knew something that they didn't know. And that that was a very, very marketable thing to have. That was a sellable thing. And then it, you know, Monica believed in me and I had this guy, Tim Carr, who yep. was the first guy who offered me a real job and I didn't take it. But the fact that he offered me a real job with a real paycheck, I was like, oh shit, I can do this. And, you know, Tim Carr, rest in peace, was uh, a huge, a huge influence on me. A great guy. Well, yeah. Lastly, I mean, the thing is like you mentioned all these people and like every time you, I hear Gary's name, I, I just take it. I'm so, I, to this day, like I'm so pissed at him um, for dying uh you know and not reaching Gary was out an interesting one gary's like how can i say it if if i had catered to my self-indulgence more and let my ego run my life and it's hard to say this about gary because i love him i could be like gary but no, i it, was it, it I was, was smart I mean, enough you know, to not do that his, his that last i mean i you know his la that he was here and he didn't really reach out and when he got sick he didn't like ask for help in a way it's it's always a uh, it's always upsetting. Of course, I take myself to tell. How did I not know? How did I not go reach out? You know, I hate. I, I'm very mad at myself about it. I, I couldn't have known. Like I understand none of his friends. I mean, I mean, Q-tip didn't. He didn't. Q-tip didn't know. If he didn't know, there's no way I was gonna know. That was bad. You know. But the book, as I'm reading, you know, there's so much death, man. There's so as there are so many people who you loved, and that's the thing who we knew, and mm. who are gone your partners and just all throughout your parents, my parents, you know, uh, and, and that's where the grace comes. You know, you read the book and I, it's like, like, uh, I guess that's why people who died was in my head too. And Jim Carroll, it's like somehow holding space for those people, understanding what that was, understanding how lucky we are to still be here and getting a chance to still man. grow. I mean, look, man, one of the things that at my book, like, Gibby died in December of 2019. I was literally with MC Light when I got the phone call. Um, I had, I had, there was a moment in our life when me and my friend Gibby didn't talk for almost eight years. Right. And this guy was like, basically, he almost raised me. He's like one of my, one of the most important people in my entire life. And um, I, I got sober and I made an amends and we developed a friendship again. Not, not to the extent that I had envisioned, but and I talked to him in October because I heard he was just like, yo, your man looks fucked up. Like right. he's flat, like, cause he was a physical specimen. And um, I reached out to him and he told me he was going to be fine. Oh, I'm, I'm cool. I'm going to be good. And he died in December. 
So I go to New York in January to the thing, and I sit there with my other partner, John Gamble, and he dies in October of that year. So life, um, besides all the people that died before them, the fact that life is so temporary was really hammered home to me. And we're in the pandemic, and all these people are dying. And I felt like um, it's our duty to maybe help celebrate these people as much as we can, keep their names alive, and to take a piece of them with us. You know, to me, death is... um, it's been a constant in my life in, in a weird way. I'm not that, um, I don't get that affected by it in terms of being completely crushed or sad by it with, within reason. But um, I also understand that it's a part of life and we have to figure out a way to channel that into something positive. How do we take all this loss and make it um, significant in our stories and how do we learn from these things? And you the know, continued growth, yeah. I don't want to make the same mistakes with people who are still alive that are made with others. So we want to have some kind of peace and, and finality to it all. And I've been lucky enough with both my parents. I got to get to that place and, and several other people in my life. And I want to make sure that no one else who I love leaves the earth without me having made some form of amends with them. Yeah. Connection. That's why, I mean, I, you know, when I saw, uh, when we, when we got the book, I just was so excited and so was aimed to just be like, look at what Dante did, man. Just the pride in you continuing to grow and not like and having this dream of expression and connection. And like the book is a big alm in a way. It's a big way of of saying, look, this is who I am. It's a prayer, right? It's a, a prayer for connection. It's a prayer for grace. And I was so glad that it was so good too, right? Because- uh, that would suck. And because like you, I can't fake. I mean, we are both cursed with not being able to fake the funk. And uh, it's, such a, it's a terrible thing sometimes. It right? is. And no, it's a curse. It's a curse. So it's a curse. tough, man. And I try to work on being more tactful, you know, and it's fucking hard, man. No, but it's worth it. Like I'm telling you, man, me reacting however I did to something you sent me eight years ago makes it the reason I, I'm willing to go through that, you, you know, knowing you and knowing you and knowing you'll be like, ah, oh, fuck that guy for a minute. I'm willing because then when it's great, it's such a relief to be able to go like, oh my God, this is great. Thank you. And man. you know, you know, it's legit. So taking into account all the, all of the stuff, the people who pass, I guess the obligation we have to those people along the way is to continue to just try to react lovingly and with honesty. And honesty. like, that's, I think, a hallmark of what's in the book, who you, who you are, how you try to deal with people and how I try to deal with people too. And to that end, what are you doing within music now? What, who are you, are you producing still? Are you more interested I'm in A&R? I have a couple of A&R gigs. I consult for a label called Plus One and I'm, I'm in the middle of finishing a distribution deal with a very big entity, um, a singular human being who is one of my musical rap heroes. And it is almost done. I was on a call about it earlier this morning. So I will have my own label in a second, a couple of weeks, but I just can't say where it is till it's done. Um, I am working with a bunch of young artists. I've actually been really inspired by lots of music I've been finding of late. All these kids are super young, but they invoke the spirit of what I loved in the 90s. So it's almost a new version of that aesthetic, if that makes any sense. And I've lived long enough to see things go full circle. 
Well, and in terms of things going full circle, I'm so glad to be able to talk to you, man. And um, John Sheck, it was great. I called Beller and I spoke to Sheck for an hour yesterday too. And the book is like this great sort of, you know, for those of us who are around all that, it just brings it back in this incredibly beautiful way. And I think if you weren't around for it, it's incredibly evocative of the late 80s, really the 80s, the 90s, and into the 2000s too. And um, I hope you're working on the sequel. Working on a short story book, and I um, I optioned the film rights to the book to a screenwriter uh, named David Matthews, who right. is a pretty heavy cat. He did Boardwalk and a bunch of other shit. And I'm working with um, Cheo Coker on something as well. You know, The Strike. Cheo's um, awesome. I love Cheo. He's a great guy. I saw he interviewed the other night. That guy's awesome. He's a great person. He's a great writer as well. And a super talented guy. That's great. Um, I would say last thing. So you're going to continue writing. You're going to continue doing music. Yeah. And have any of the people uh, reached? Are you and your niece still in a good spot? Did you and your- Yeah, we're great. Me and everyone except I'd say my older sister are pretty good. Um, maybe me and Grand Poobah are not so good. Um, I think he, he got offended by a couple of things. But you know what? Like, I just was honest. But, you know, I went to this. I'll close with this. I went to the De La Soul thing in New York and Dave had just passed. And I always say like, I didn't go to college. I went to hip hop, right? That was my college. And it was like my college reunion. And I said to myself in the midst of this on stage and I'm sitting there and, and Latifah's got her arm on me and Commons right there. Why Jess had met that night. And we had this, like, he said all this wild stuff to me. I was really beautiful. And you know, fucking all my friends are there and, and I said to myself, I, in the midst of this spiritual experience, and it was a spiritual experience, and I had to say it to myself, this is a spiritual experience right now, that like, if I could do it all over the book, I would end it right there. Because that night was the sum of the parts of all of it. Awesome. And and I'm lucky enough to have lived long enough to experience that. And it was tinged with with some bittersweet stuff. And, and often life is, you know, Dave didn't make it to see his music you know, end up on DSPs, but it was a celebration of this whole thing that me and all my friends were a part of. And it felt amazing to be part of that. And, you know, look, hip hop is a, a black art form, much like bebop, but I'm lucky enough to have been allowed to contribute to one of the greatest youth cultures and most important artistic movements of our lifetime. And for me, this is the great honor. And, and man, I got to say that moment in there, we're lucky enough sometimes to know we're in a moment of greatness, of great import. And I was in a moment of great import. And to me, it, it coincided with the day my fucking book comes out. And there's some, you know, we call it a God shot. There was something about that. So for me, um, yeah, it was, it was a heavy day and it was great. Not the day it came out, but the day that the pre-order I understand. Came out. And la last thing we're going, I'll just say, Dante also did sign Latifah, make that first record. So like there's, it's a go read the book to hear about all this stuff. Dante, next time you come through New York, come over and have dinner with Amy and me, please. I would love that. Don't, be there don't come through without really calling or then we're going to have a major beef and I don't want to have to come see you, okay? I, I love you. All right, my brother, I love you too. Take care of yourself. You well, peace.